Planet Pod, essential listening for everyone who cares about the planet. Hello and welcome to this special edition of Planet Pod from COP26, sponsored by the COP26 Universities Network and the University of Strathclyde. Um, I'm Amanda Carpenter and I'm absolutely overwhelmed to interview my guest today, Andy Purvis, who you've all heard of. Um, who is a professor at the Natural History Museum and at Imperial College. Andy, thank you so much and welcome to the pod. Thank you, Amanda. We're sitting here in the Nature Bar, which is this extraordinary space that the Natural History Museum has created in the New York Times Climate Hub at COP. And you've just stepped off the platform, which you've shared slightly virtually with Mark Carmen, I gather. Yes, who was uh, effectively on mute for the first half hour as well. So uh, he was very, very uh, patient with the situation and our, our moderator handled it absolutely brilliantly. But yes, it was a, a little bit surreal to begin with. And that kind of, I guess, um, epitomises what we want to talk about really, which is the bringing to the fore of the biodiversity agenda into the heart of some of this decision-making about finance, about, about policy, about structure, that we need to address as a nation and that COP is trying to do and possibly not succeeding in doing um, so we should probably go back a little bit, and, and if I can ask you a slightly naive question, when we talk about biodiversity, what do we mean? It's a really good question, because when members of the public use the term biodiversity, they're usually meaning how many species are there. And that's certainly one aspect of biodiversity. So there's maybe seven or eight million species of animals and plants, about a million of them are threatened with extinction now, which is a very large number. And so biodiversity loss, one side of it we really should be concerned about and we should try and stop as best we can is the final extinction of species because once they're gone, they're gone forever. Which is, you know, on our watch, that's shame on us. But biodiversity is very much more than rare or threatened species most of which live a long way away from us. It's also the foundation on which our society is built. So civilization basically began with our ability to manage ecosystems to produce useful stuff in large quantities. We have been natural resource managers throughout the whole of the history of civilization. And that is how our population has grown, our well-being has grown, our longevity has increased, well-being has increased. It is, compared to the vast wave of human history, however it may feel day to day, a great time to be alive. We're really, really lucky in the grand sweep of history. But increasingly, over the last couple of centuries or so, really since the Industrial Revolution, that expansion of the human enterprise has been mining nature rather than managing it. We've been using it up quicker than it can regenerate. And the Industrial Revolution here really was key because it was the first time since classical antiquity anyway, really, where you could do large-scale environmental damage not where you lived. And that's critical because it's someone else's problem. And so once you've got long-distance mass transport, you're freed from having to live with the environmental consequences of your actions. In effect, you don't notice the environmental degradation that you are causing. And so 
we saw a much larger scale uh, exploitation of natural resources, partly to fuel the machines that were being built through the Industrial Revolution, partly to provide the raw materials to go into the machines, and partly because people became rich and wanted more stuff. So really, um, when we talk about the 1.5 degree, and we talk about that as you know, the warming of the planet has happened in post-industrial revolution, post-industrial age. So really, our damage both to the climate in terms of climate heating and to the biodiversity happened at the same time. That, that process was, was inter interlinked. Yes, there have been a couple of step-ups, sort of quantum leaps in, in our impact. The Industrial Revolution is the first one of those, really. But then also, in the mid-20th century, a lot of people recognise what they call the Great Acceleration, where there's a, a, an inflection point, an acceleration in the drivers causing environmental damage, um, including uh, climate, uh, greenhouse gas emissions, but also fertiliser use, also well, many other drivers, deforestation as well. And that... Um, that acceleration in the second half of the 20th century is, is the one whose um, implications are still playing out for biodiversity as well as for climate. So it's slightly extraordinary, isn't it, that, that we're at COP looking at these big issues and we have had a statement about deforestation, but on the whole, the biodiversity agenda doesn't really get much of a look in at this conversation here. And I know that's partly because we have a second COP, don't we? Have what we're calling COP15, which is the biodiversity COP. So could you explain to our listeners perhaps a tiny bit about what that is and then we can talk about why the two aren't happening together because they clearly should. Yes, there's been a general tendency, I guess it's, it's human nature, to try and deal with a thing in its smallest narrow sense when a problem presents itself. And so climate became a focus then a little bit later on, um, not much later on, biodiversity also became a focus, but of rather different communities, uh, different sets of researchers, different sets of policy makers, often different government departments within governments. So the two uh, efforts to mobilise resource and ingenuity towards addressing runaway climate change and also runaway biodiversity loss were almost in ignorance of one another, certainly not joined up, certainly not maximising co-benefits where you take action on climate that benefits biodiversity or you take action on biodiversity that benefits climate and also, crucially, benefit people uh, who, you know, I'm speaking as very lucky person who isn't dependent on biodiversity local to where I live. I depend on biodiversity somewhere. And that's a privileged position that being in the cash economy gives me. But there are billions of people who depend critically on the nature near them, near where they live. They don't have that ability to buy things in. So they are critically dependent on what happens to their local climate and their local nature. And on the whole, those are the people, when we use the term loss and damage, don't we, that those are the people very often, very often in the global south, who are on the really sharp end of climate change impacts as well as the biodiversity loss impacts. Yes, and in both cases, they're not really the agents of the damage. They're just the, the victims of it. 
one of the things that accelerated in that great acceleration is international trade. So since I was born, the human population has doubled, and each person, on average, consumes about one and a half times more stuff. But because global trade has increased more than tenfold, that stuff is generated further and further away. And there's a common tendency to offshore environmental problems. So in the UK, we have relatively good environmental protections, but one of the consequences of that is that we are often importing things from places with less good environmental protections, where we are able to get a cheap price and no one is, none of the consumers are paying the true environmental cost of the degradation. That falls on the people whose nature has just been sold off on the cheap. Yeah, and, and I suppose that's why, I mean that is why we should have both the biodiversity cop and this cop together because the solution doesn't sit in a silo, doesn't it? I mean, we, we cannot just solve the biodiversity crisis without solving the climate crisis and we cannot just ignore some of the key actors that will help us solve the climate crisis, which includes investment and business and the wider community. We can't ignore their role, but we also need to make them aware of the biodiversity impacts of what they're doing as well. So it, it, we need those two things to be, to be meshed together. Yes, I, I certainly agree, Amanda, that they've got to be connected better. Whether they need to be actually combined and run as a single process, you and I have both noticed it's quite difficult to get around <laughs> here with, with just the focus on climate. Now, if you add biodiversity, and then also really the other part of the trifecta is sustainable development, then you're left with very few places that could, <laughs> could potentially cope. And also very few negotiating teams, very few sets of experts. So it may be that we need to have these, these separate tracks, but with better connection. Mm -hmm. And certainly uh, it was very gratifying to see, for instance, that the IPCC and the IPBS, the uh, Panel on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services, produced their first joint workshop report just last year, starting to bring those streams of expert knowledge and policy suggestions and ideas and options together into a more of a unified whole so that we, we don't end up pitting solutions to climate problems against solutions to biodiversity problems, um, but they're not exactly the same crisis. So certainly climate change in and of itself causes damage to biodiversity, but it's not even in the top three drivers of biodiversity loss. It is miles behind at the moment both over-exploitation and particularly land and sea use change. Um, but in coming decades it's likely to become as important, but at the moment it's a long way behind. So biodiversity needs solutions that are largely overlapping but not completely with climate. Climate needs solutions that are largely but not overlapping with those of biodiversity. So, that, so there, there are some separations. At their heart, both of them are driven largely by our desire to consume more overconsumption, and that's something I would have loved to have seen more focus on than we've had so far here at COP. 
there's been an emphasis at the moment on the role of business, for instance, in selling solutions, which is good and it's important and it does need to happen and there are opportunities to make money, to make profit without it costing the earth. It can be to everybody's benefit, a real win-win. But also, there are real benefits to changing our consumption patterns towards consumption patterns that put less stress on nature's provisioning systems. There seems to me to be very little political in this country, certainly political, big P political, will or inclination to do that because the ultimate question, the ultimate ask then for most people is to do a bit less, to buy fewer things, to consume less, to change perhaps their change their diet, their travel habits, to turn their heating down. I mean, there's a push on to individual consumers to solve this crisis, and that's a whole other conversation. Whether mm. you know how we how we deal with our own individual responsibilities as well as bigger corporate responsibilities. But but that is actually asking people to have less of something and do less of something is not politically very attractive, is it? Well, I think it, it depends on partly your framing of it. So partly, in what sense are you having less of something? So I could spend the little money I spend on clothes. I, I could imagine spending it on something, you know, on, on cheaply made things that wouldn't last long, that don't have any kind of uh, environmental standards, they don't have any ethical protection in terms of the work, workers who produced it. And so all the way through the chain of supply, it's been uh, kind of a, a, a race to the bottom in terms of the, the standards and protections. Great. Probably last five minutes. Or I can buy fewer things that have an ethical source that is sustainable that is doing good for the people who make it rather than not really paying them a living wage. It's a different attitude to consumption. I, I genuinely think, and it's going to sound a little bit weird at first, but so, so two points. I genuinely think in many countries in the developed world we've become addicted to consumption for its own sake, buying things that we don't need, barely use, built-in obsolescence, um, but very, very unsustainable practices that benefit the people who sell stuff. Most of all, it, it's them who benefit. not the people who make the stuff, the people who sell the stuff, who are benefiting. And at the same time, we have millions of people facing serious hardship and shortage. I doesn't feel like a, a great system to me that you have both of those things going on simultaneously. It feels as though if consuming more than you need starts to incur accelerating costs and doing damage to the environment incurs full costs, then you'd get... Um, something a little bit redistributional, you'd have a lot more equality, both between uh, producers, often in the global south, and consumers, but also in often highly uh, divided, stratified, unequal societies based on consumption. Yes, 
You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. And I think that the, um, I think that message is, is coming out loud and clear from lots and lots of the groups who are oh, I'm, I'm, I'm worried and I'm concerned it's not being heard by those people who are making the decisions. And I'm worried we're trapped in, a, in, in what is essentially a very consumerist, capitalist economy that makes those sorts of decisions quite difficult because we are talking about a transformational shift of people's behaviour. So, so one thing that I would kind of like to say on this, for 30 years, many companies have known the environmental harm that they're doing. And this has been you know, increasingly uh, exposed. And we have many companies who are moving slowly from environmental denialism to environmental delay, as Michael Mann called it yesterday, climate inactivism. But also on, on the biodiversity front. These are actors who are acting in bad faith, but they still lobby governments, and they still lobby the public through uh, media interests. We've seen over those same 30 years when these companies have been saying things that they have known are not really true, that the state of the environment has worsened and the cost of putting things right has risen. So I think we need our governments, all governments, stop listening to these people. <laughs> you know, please, governments, listen to the people who've been telling you the truth. Which is largely the scientists. It's not only the scientists. It's, it's also um, indigenous communities. It's also some governments, uh, and particularly in, in the global south. But there are some people who definitely have not been telling the truth and they still appear to have the ear of government. They are still getting tax breaks. They are still getting concessions. It appears that special cases are still made on their behalf. And really? Andy, we've strayed into politics. Yes, you're I'm terribly right. sorry. No, I, I, and I, we, we should talk about this because this is incredibly important. And actually, I think in the work that you do helps to highlight that because because that's quite a complicated conversation for some people to have and a threatening conversation um, but it is a conversation we must have and it's an action that we must take and I think there are lots of activists around us and tomorrow is a big day of action here in Glasgow lots of young people are saying this but you've put out an even more compelling rallying cry for action if I can call it that inadvertently perhaps by doing the work that you do when you've measured the biodiversity lost, and you've pointed out to us in your recent um, findings that we are amongst the most nature-depleted country in the world. And I don't think people in the UK think of themselves like that. So I think you've really cut to the heart of some of those issues for people, that we are, you know, it, it's not just the loss of species in the Amazon rainforest that we haven't even discovered yet. It's, it's species that we know and that we grew up with, you know, the hedgehog and all the other things, but, but also the species we don't look at very often, perhaps like the invertebrates. No, no. We're in a parlous state, aren't we? We are, we are. And, and it's a parlous state, it's a little bit like the, um, the, the story of, of a frog in a pan where the temperature is turned up. What we suffer from a lot in conservation biology is a phenomenon known as the shifting baseline syndrome, whereby generation to generation the change is not huge in most places 
And so, yeah, there aren't quite as many hedgehogs as there used to be. But, you know, we've still got some squirrels. <laughs> the fact that they're not native squirrels is... <laughs> uh, they've got some native squirrels. That's true, they do. Um, and, and so you can lose sight of how far you've fallen. And biodiversity data are starting now to become available uh, at, you know, at large scale and, and around the world, but not back in time. We don't have anything like the, the historical record of biodiversity change the way that we do of climate change. But together with uh, my group at the Natural History Museum, we've been modelling how local um, biodiversity, the biodiversity in local ecological communities responds to land use pressures and related changes like that. And because we know the history of land use change and those other pressures, we're able to, having characterised the, the response of biodiversity to the pressures, we can then take a snapshot of what we think the current state of biodiversity is, but we can also turn it into a movie by looking at how the drivers have changed and using that to estimate how the biodiversity has changed. And so the measure that we use is a thing called the Biodiversity Intactness Index, which estimates the fraction of naturally present biodiversity that's still left. So it's not about species extinction, but you, you take the composition of the ecological community, how you infer it to have been in the past, and ask how similar is what we have now to that, how much of that original assemblage is still left. And there's a suggestion from the Planetary Boundaries Framework from the Stockholm Resilience Centre that the world is in trouble if and when it falls below 90% on average across the world. On average across the world, it's about 78%. So we are in trouble, but in the UK, it's about a half. So we've lost about half of our biodiversity on average from our local ecosystems. And it comes back to what I was saying about the Industrial Revolution. We kind of started it. <laughs> we started the um, turning nature into money at large industrial scales. And so we did that first to our own nature and then we kind of exported it. Um, and yeah, we are very low. So That's our, a and terrifying statistic. I mean, I think it is. Is it fifty-three percent of the statistics? Yeah. So, so this isn't just crisis. Crisis is nothing like strong enough word for this. This is this is this is catastrophe if we carry on at this rate. Well, yeah. Except, so our biodiversity intactness in the UK is relatively stable. Okay. It's not worsening rapidly. It's it's pretty stable, and that's true in a lot of um, developed rich countries because we have these environmental protections now so we're improving water quality where we've got protections that are perfect we have protections uh, on ancient woodland for instance and sites of special scientific interest uh, we have protected areas that are, are managed in ways that try and keep some biodiversity so we have protections but one of the consequences of that is that we offshore a lot of damage and also Having stable biodiversity, you know, it sounds good. Sounds as though all you've got to do to make yourself nature positive is just improve a little bit. 
And we can do that. We should be able to do that. True, we can, because at the moment we're bumping along the bottom. It wouldn't be reasonable to expect an upward trend from many countries in the global south who aren't in this situation of having a, a, a post-agricultural, post-industrial economy and who are actually dependent for economic growth on using their nature. So countries like Brazil, for example, rapidly growing economy but still very much based on agricultural commodities and it's lost about 8% of its biodiversity in tax, 8 percentage points in the last 50 years. So it's far from stable, but it's still way above where we are in the UK. And so expecting them to suddenly go nature positive, because we can, when we come to COP15, the biodiversity COP, and we want countries to make their commitments, it's not reasonable to expect countries that have to use their nature in that way in order to make a living, it's not reasonable to expect them to show positive trajectories in the same way that it wouldn't be reasonable to expect the UK to go up to an intactness of 80% suddenly. We can't do it because we're at such a low base now. So one of the things that the Biodiversity Intactness Index data show, and you can look at them on the Museum's Biodiversity Trends Explorer, is it puts the state of nature everywhere on the same scale that includes this history. And so every country is between 0 and 100%. And you can see that in much of the developed world, status is low but stable. In much of the developing world, it's high but falling. And those two blocks kind of have different negotiating positions going into COP. And what these data show, that short-term biodiversity data couldn't show, if, it, if it's lost sight because of the shifting baseline, it shows that both sides have valid points. Yeah. And so the negotiators at COP, who I do not envy, hopefully will, will be able to recognise that there might not be a one-size-fits-all solution in terms of what the targets and goals should be. No. Because, this, because, this, because the problems are different for every, for every nation, aren't they? And I guess it's... It's similar to, to you know the nationally defined contributions, the NDCs that we talk about with emissions. But 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 it, you say we can come up to a slightly more positive state. How can we do that if we are losing habitats and species? Because we are still losing habitats and species, aren't we? Yes. And and you mentioned the triple SI and and the piece that that, that that follows our conversation is is an example of where that actually that protection counts for nothing. And there's a proposal to 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 concrete over a, 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 a SI and destroy a species-rich woodland. So how how can we do that if we're caught in this situation where we are still constantly using more land for, you know, siting of wind farms or production? I mean, how how are we going to shift that balance? Well, I was talking earlier about how at the moment supply chains tend to be not really about any kind of environmental or ethical value necessarily. So at the moment, despite the fact that about 70% of the UK is used for farming, it's, it does really the bulk of the damage to the UK's biodiversity. We farm in ways that rather than working with nature, try to iron it flat. The try and, and I'm caricaturing slightly, but 
rather than uh, in in more of a, a kind of ecological intensification paradigm or trying agroforestry or creative solutions that can provide a mosaic of habitat types in close proximity to one another uh, so that you start getting those ecosystem services, those benefits from nature like pest control, like natural fertility, like pollination. Instead, the drive has been, and it's been policy-driven, I, I don't blame farmers for, for doing it, um, has been large fields of monoculture, yeah. get rid of the edges, yeah. get rid of the barriers, make the fields bigger, um, more and more intensive livestock farming. Yeah. And so the intensity of our farming is, on the whole, obviously there are exceptions such as organic farming, but the, the intensity is really, really high. So, do we need that intensity? Well, we do if we have to produce as much food as we do now. Right. Because we really don't want to fix this by instead buying food in from the tropics where they have more biodiversity to start with because that would be doing more damage than it prevents. But we waste about a third of the food grown globally, which is criminal. And also, I know there's resistance to um, consider changes in, in societal behaviour as partial solutions, but it's, it's livestock farming that is probably the biggest single, you know, globally, the biggest driver of biodiversity loss because either grazing land or land where fodder is going to be fed to them, globally that is equal in area to the whole of North and South America combined. And it's a woefully inefficient way to provide calories. That's not to say we shouldn't grow, we shouldn't have any livestock farming, but if people had a diet that had no more meat than was good for them, then we wouldn't need to have 70% of our country given over to farming. There would be more room for nature. At the moment, there's no room for nature. 70% farming, about 9% urban. There, are, there is some hope, and we've discussed this on, and Planet Pod listeners will know, we've discussed this on the pod a lot. We've talked to a lot of, of, of um, individuals involved in the rewilding movement. We've also talked to farmers, and we've talked to farmers who are beginning to try and embrace alternative methods of farming and re replenish, if you like, some of those lost wild margins and those hedgerows. And, and I think there's a move amongst some parts of the farming community particularly to do more of this. As always, it comes back to economics, and leaving the European Union has meant that we've revisited the whole funding for farming, and there are moves afoot to, 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 to support positive, ecologically beneficial farming. That brings with it a whole series of different problems as well, because it's not as simple as it seems, and farmers find that if they're doing it already, they then can't apply for the grants, and so it's very complex. But, but I think, from a general public's point of view, there is enormous enthusiasm and support for a, a more balanced way of producing food and an increasing rise in interest in plant-based foods and plant-based alternatives to milk. And, and I think if we took to the streets tomorrow with the young people who are demonstrating here at COP, we would find that a huge percentage of them are 
low meat eaters if no meat eaters are vegetarians or flexitarians and are very conscious and aware of this so so that gives me hope do you have hope Andy are you are you traveling hopefully through this COP and beyond to COP15 I am hopeful I'm hopeful for really the reason you've just articulated I'm not always hopeful when I see how um, initiatives turn into decisions that are sometimes slightly weaker, turn into implementations that are weaker still. But I do genuinely feel that um, we are much closer to a social tipping point than we ever were before. So just as as an analogy, when I was a kid, drink driving was relatively socially acceptable. People would let their friends do it. And then fairly quickly after that, it changed. And it wasn't a thing that friends would let friends do. And people would call each other out on it. And I think that and once that stage is reached, it becomes uncomfortable to be doing the thing that used to be okay. And now it's not. And I really think that we are close to that because of the continued pressure, the continued pressure, particularly from young people. Uh, I was, I, I, I saw the, the sort of star of the of the COP uh, earlier today, uh, Greta Thunberg, who I think has done more than any other person to give me the hope that I have, and I, I just think that she's absolutely amazing. But so are so many of the the activists and the pressure groups because I I think we need legislation, I think we need that kind of mandatory instrument that means the polluter pays in effect. It means that you have to pay the cost if you're damaging the environment. And until when, the only cost is the social disapprobation. It's the reputational damage. And that only happens because of the protesters and the people kicking up a fuss. And so if there isn't legislation yet protecting nature, then the only way to impose costs on organisations and actors who would damage it is to call them out. Yeah. An agenda, I think, you've given us there, Andy. Thank you. I wouldn't be able to do anything as political as that. No, absolutely. Those entirely neutral statements. It's been an absolute joy and a delight. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today because I know how busy you are. Um, and, and I do, I will point everybody at the Natural History Museum's website um, as well as suggesting that you, you, know, you visit Planet Pod's website to catch up more. So thank you very much for your time. It's been fabulous. Thank you, Amanda. I really enjoyed it. And Andy's been talking about the loss of species and the threat to biodiversity. And in the UK, we are one of the most nature-depleted countries in the world. And sadly, we continue to destroy um, valuable and precious habitats. And as part of this podcast, I headed out into the countryside, into coastal Suffolk, to hear of a threat to one such very precious habitat, which contains an extraordinary rich species mix and is at risk of the bulldozers on the concrete. So you're going to hear about that now. I've come out to an area of extraordinary um, hidden beauty just deep in the Suffolk countryside. 
I'm sitting on the edge of a wood next to the River Hundred and you can probably hear birds in the background and bits of wind chime. And I'm talking to Dr. Jill Horrocks, who's an expert and specialist in this part of the world, but also particularly um, on all the biodiversity and the species that this habitat contains. So hello, Jill, and thanks so much for joining me. Hello, and thank you for introducing me in a rather exaggerated way. I, I've just lived here for a long time. <laughs> so She's actually my... playing down her skills, obviously. But, <laughs> but but what I'd like to do is I'd like to start, Jill, with maybe you could describe for our listeners what it is that we can see around us here in the wood. Well, this is a, a lovely piece of woodland in that it's um, right by the River Hundred and leans over into the River Hundred and several little ditches from the River Hundred go into the wood to either irrigate it or drain it. Um, the River Hundred is a really old watercourse um, which has further down, well not too far away actually from here, um, has Bronze Age barrows because there was a major settlement here um, which was possibly um, uh, Saxon eventually and the river used to be navigable. So what we're left with now is a wonderful wet um, floodplain. And so opposite, we're looking at a, a beautiful grazing marsh, um, which is very much the envy of people who have large herbivores around here because um, I, keep, I keep horses. And where I am, if we get three days of rain, the grass dies, but here it never does. And um, we can see one of the uh, interesting archaeological uh, features, mounds, um, opposite us. And in front of that is a magnificent champion oak, which stands more or less alone. There are some monolith trees behind it. And then to the north of us, we can see um, a wonderful rewilded woodland, um, which is full of alder and some downy birch, silver birch, willow, uh, nettles, lots of nettles, lots of cleaver and um, also various other moisture-loving plants like, unfortunately, Himalayan balsam. And that is um, very much from here to almost the next bit of paddock, and it's exactly where Scottish Power wants to put their cable corridor. So what we can see is beautiful, rich woodland, historic woodland, um, and you mentioned Anglo-Saxon barrows. So we're talking about a landscape that's been here for generations, hundreds of generations. And a native woodland, which presumably is really rich in species, both bird and mammal and obviously plant species. But it's under threat, isn't it? Because um, we have that particular conundrum. We need clean, natural, renewable energy. And the proposal here is for Scottish Power to build a very large offshore wind farm out into the North Sea and then run their cables here into this woodland. Is that right? Yes, unfortunately, yes, it is. Um, the the problem is also that the river itself feeds the triple SI just a few hundred metres downstream. And the triple SI, um, you probably know, is looked after by RSPB in North Warren. And the, the effects of what they're going to do to the river, they're going to bisect it, treat it like a ditch, basically, um, what they're going to do to the river on the triple SI hasn't really been assessed properly and they have hardly considered the river as a receptor. But we know there are otters in it. I mean, I've filmed an otter ring and um, because they haven't seen them, they um, therefore don't exist. So there's been a problem with some of the surveying, but, but I guess what we'd really like to know is what 
what do we stand to lose if Scottish Power go ahead and put these massive great cable corridors through this incredibly rich and diverse landscape? Um, the woodland here is a typically um, old structure in that it's lined with alder. And alder is a, a special kind of a plant that pulls up um, pollutants from the ground and is also a, a massive carbon sink. So we're going to lose um, the carbon capture and we're also going to lose the protection of the riverbank and the woodland here. So we're going to be at risk of flooding because this is a sort of natural way of coping with um, the flooding here. Plus the fact that wetlands absorb an enormous amount of water and that's why they're so species rich. So if you look at the National Biodiversity Database, you'll see there are about 900 different species here, many of which are red listed. 900 species. I mean, I'm looking at woods, I mean, I'm, as everybody knows, I'm not a wood expert, but I'm looking at what looks like a reasonably ordinary sort of wood. And you're telling me there are 900 species in and around where we're sitting? Uh, yes, according to the experts who upload things on the National Diversity <laughs> Database. So we've got everything from, you know, different kinds of invertebrates. In fact, that's the other thing I forgot to tell you. We're sitting slap bang in the middle of one of the most important invertebrate corridors in Britain. Give me an example of what we might see making its way up and down this corridor. Okay, so lots and lots of moss, um, dragonflies, butterflies, glowworms, um, quite a few rare um, creepy crawlies. <laughs> and the thing is that because of our lack of biodiversity and because of aggressive agriculture, we've, we've kind of um, got rid of a lot of them. Um, and so um, the bug life, which is a branch of natural England, has designated these um, corridors which are there to protect and provide connectivity. So this corridor goes along the coast up to Norfolk and then it goes across here um, uh, to the other bug life corridor, which is about Saxmundham Way, which is about six miles to the west and then also goes up to Norfolk. So it's joining Norfolk, Essex and Suffolk together. And of course, this means that the, we risk losing that connectivity. That's incredibly important. I mean, that's a super highway for pollinators and for species which are at the bottom of our food chain, which are vital for other biodiversity, aren't they? Vital for other aspects of, of our natural world. So, so we've got fantastic invertebrates and we've got bugs buzzing about. What have we got in the way of bird life? Because we've heard one or two birds since we've been sitting here. Yes. Um, well, of course, we get a lot of migratory birds here in, in spring. So the red listed ones are things like uh, nightingale, turtle dove, um, cuckoo. Of course, cuckoo isn't necessarily nesting here, but certainly its foraging is dependent. Um, we've got a snipe that usually lives in that bramble stand over there. Um, and the bramble stands, of course, are important for all kinds of uh, all kinds of birds. Um, we've got, there's been a sighting of a polecat, which is a bit special. Um, we've got red deer <laughs> and we have lots of reptiles as well. So we've got slow worms and uh, green grass snakes. There are adders as well, but there isn't a sighting of them in this part. But, you know, other people like us, we've seen them. <laughs> but we just haven't written it in the national database. So it's incredibly important. So it's a rich species habitat. It's a wet wood, which is quite unusual, isn't it, for, for the UK? But it's deeply under threat because of this idea that we might bring in, in offshore wind, inshore, with a corridor. Now, lots of people listening to this podcast would say, but we need renewables, we need wind, it's clean. Um, you know, you're just going to have to not be a NIMBY. 
Tell me, Jill, why you think Scottish Power should put their corridor somewhere else? Um, because they can. Um, I think that's a very good argument, that if they do follow the Pathfinder project, which is supposed to be joining up the power generated at sea and then finding a, a single or at least a lot fewer points of entry, um, that will make it a lot easier, especially if they pick uh, an industrial site or a brownfield site. Um, it makes much more sense than bringing frequent cable corridors ashore in one of the most fragile coasts on, on the planet. Because yeah, it isn't just, we're inshore here, obviously we're inland a little bit, but if we went a few miles you know, that way, down to the left, we'd actually get to the coast. And there's lots of coastal erosion. There's, it's a sand, there's sandy dunes. They're likely to, to slip away into the sea at any point. So the, it's probably the wrong place for the cables anyway, isn't it? I would argue yes, because um, the cliffs here are based um, on coralline crag, which is also kind of unique to this area. And it's very crumbly. And while it does provide a buffer for some things, like can we talk about EDS plans at present? They want to use the coralline crag under the sea as a buffer to the effect of the sea energy for their building of sizable sea. So the fact that Scottish power wants to come through the same way is a bit of a bone of contention. But um, the cliffs regularly fall into the sea every winter. We get bits of them falling in. There was a man killed a couple of years ago walking his dog. Um, so it does seem that the cliffs are going to be not um, well served, let's say, by this. Also, the cliffs are the place where the Suffolk naturalists go to do their winter and spring bird surveys because it's so rich. So there's a huge area under threat here. And, you know, at this time particularly, here we are, we're at the COP26 conference, sponsored in part by Scottish Power, I might add. We will be asking Scottish Power to comment. We don't expect them to answer, but we will ask them just the same. So here we are at a point where where, you know, this is the, the moment when we need to balance out our desire for clean, renewable energy with our need to look after irreplaceable landscapes that bring a richness not just to, to the wildlife, but also to, to human habitation and to our communities and to people's quality of life. So it's a difficult circle to square, isn't it? Um, but you've just suggested to me that they might be able to go elsewhere. Now, is this a case of nimbyism or is this just because we think another site would be better? Um, I think other sites will be better because we actually don't have the infrastructure here to support what they need to do. We don't have any A roads here. We only have B roads and a lot of them are single track. So whatever they build, which is going to be large, is going to really fall foul of all of that um, lack of infrastructure. So I think finding a site, and they do exist, where they've already built such as down the coast in Brumfield or uh, further down our MP has suggested Bradwell in Essex where there's a, a decommissioned power station and has all the necessary connection to the grid as well as the infrastructure and also sea access it seems much more logical than to pick here um, it's almost like they were hoping for a slightly different site but they've ended up having to here, Friston. And so that means they've got to get to Friston and they've picked a very strange route. So there's lots of reasons why they shouldn't be doing this. But I think one of the reasons that you're particularly concerned about is they haven't actually bothered to look and see what's here. So they haven't done a proper survey, have they? They haven't actually looked at the woodland. They haven't looked at the, the, the wetlands. They haven't looked at 
at the richness and diversity of the animal and bird life and, and invertebrate species. So what are you asking Scottish Power to do? I'm asking them to reconsider and to look at the the technology that's coming online to be able to join up power at sea. And also, I think it shows the problem with these kind of um, planning processes that most of their original plans were based on desk-bound surveys. And you can't actually plan according to a desk-bound survey because sometimes data are missing. Um, for instance, the wet woodland here was missing on the on the DEFRA surveys when they first started out three years ago. So it, it isn't enough, it isn't good enough to plan from Glasgow or wherever they, they've been planning from using their computers. They have to come and find out here. So Scottish Power, if you're listening, get your wellies on, get down here and Jill will be delighted to show you this incredibly beautiful and special landscape that is teeming, even on a slightly chilly, blustery October afternoon, is absolutely teeming with wildlife and with species. Jill, thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to Planet Pod. Please follow us on Twitter and Instagram or visit the website theplanetpod.com for more information and to download previous episodes. We'd love to hear from you, so get in touch if you have any ideas about issues we should be covering. And I'd like to end by thanking both Jim, our producer, Beth, who does the social media, and all of the team at Grantham Institute, at Imperial College, and at the University of Strathclyde for their help and support in making these podcasts happen. Thanks for listening and goodbye. Planet Pod is brought to you by Akil Management. My thanks to our producer, Jim Haywood, and our researcher, Beth Palmer. And to you, our listeners. Without you, we'd be very lonely. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at planet underscore pod, or visit our website. Please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you with ideas for future programmes. Thanks for listening.